So if, uh, if this morning is your first week with us, uh, we have been in a series together over the last few weeks entitled A New Name. And our purpose of this series is to introduce to you the name that we are proposing to change our church to at the end of the month. And so next week, we're actually going to have a congregational uh, vote on our name, and there's going to be some uh, opportunities for you to do early voting if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, today, there's actually a ballot box out there. But what our desire is, is to move to change our name from uh, Sierra Madre Congregational Church to Christ Congregational Church of Sierra Madre. And... This is not the first time that the church has changed its name. We began as the first congregational church of Sierra Madre, and then we dropped first. I guess they, they kind of decided that Sierra Madre was only large enough to accommodate one congregational church, so no need for a second or third congregational church, so they dropped first. And then at some point in the church's history, it became Sierra Madre Congregational Church. And now what we're proposing is a change to uh, Christ Congregational Church of Sierra Madre. Now, there's, there's a lot that goes into naming anything. And so many of you remember when you were given the task of naming your own children. My wife and I always had a very, very difficult time of giving our children names. And naming, of course, is a way of taking ownership of something. And that's why when you have those friends that give you nicknames, you got to watch out for them because they're trying to take ownership of you. And it's a, it's a tool of manipulation and control oftentimes. But there are different things that go into why we name different things, different, uh, different names. And uh, sometimes people are trying to be creative and cute. They want to have a unique name, a name that no one has ever been named before. But of course, in the ancient world, and for many people in our own day and age, uh, naming is all about the meaning. So you're not just looking for a name that, that is unique or cute or clever. You're looking for a name that means something. Our family has a, uh, a, a member of our family that's a meth addict. She's been a meth addict for, for many years now. And over the last nine months, she has been using meth while she's been pregnant. And so my wife and I have been very involved in, in, in her life and in seeking to get her care and help. And it's, it's, it's felt like in many ways it's been to no avail. And we've had this deep-seated fear and anxiety of what's going to happen when the baby finally comes because meth and alcohol are tremendously terrible on a developing fetus. And at any rate, uh, about two weeks ago now, she gave birth. And by the grace of God, she gave birth to a healthy little baby girl, eight pounds, 10 ounces. And one of the things my wife and I have been working on is helping to find this baby a really good home. And so there was a, a, a young couple, young Christian couple that had been praying for a very long time for another baby. This young mom had had three miscarriages, and she had been praying and praying and praying, and she was open to any kind of child, you know, someone that might have some issues. And our, of course, our family had been praying that this new baby would get in the arms of, an, a, of a mama from day one. And by God's grace, uh, this young mom was connected with this baby on the day she was born. And she gave her the name Eliana Grace, which meant God has heard my cry with, and he has met it with unmerited favor. And that's a name with meaning. 
And so too for us, we are seeking to grab a hold of a name that has meaning, Christ Church. And the meaning, of course, that we latch onto is that we as a people believe that our life and our foundation, the very center of who we are as individuals and as a church is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of this church and there can be no other foundation that is laid than Jesus Christ. Jesus said on this rock, namely the confession that he is the Christ, he said, I will build my church. This is the rock on which God's church is built. And so we have been exploring together over the last couple weeks and we will into the next few weeks what it means to be a church that is centered on and grounded on Christ Jesus. A couple weeks ago, we said that it meant that Christ is our end. He is our telos. He is the destination. Our final home is Jesus. We said last week that Christ is our Lord, that all of our life is all for Lord Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be talking about what it means for Christ to be our prime example, our pattern, our model for life. And so to look together at this topic Uh, We're going to be spending some time in Philippians chapter 2, but look how Paul puts it in Philippians 2, verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Stop there. He says, let each of you look out not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, I was reading that this week and I was thinking, he makes it sound so simple. Just let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. But have you found that to be an easy command to embody in your own life? Anybody else in the room find that the default mode of your own heart and life is to look out for your interests above all others? Yeah? And yet in spite of that, he calls us to look out not to our own interests, but to the interests of others to do nothing, nothing at all from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to think about others ahead of ourselves. What's interesting to me is that although this command goes way against the grain of the default mode of our own hearts and lives, and though this command is anything but easy for us to follow, what's interesting to me is that in the book of Philippians, this command and obedience to this command And the embodiment of this way of life is connected with joy. In other words, the secret, the key to the good life, to the happy life. Anyone here want the good life, the happy life, the life full of joy? Anyone in the house want that? He says, here it is. Here's the key. Just be like Jesus and follow his example of selfless, self-giving living. He says, this is it. This is the key. You know, a while back, I got on a kick of, uh, on reading about happiness. And I picked up this uh, book by a psychologist and author named uh, Daniel Gilbert. He's a professor of, of psychology at Harvard University. And he wrote this book called Stumbling Onto Happiness. 
And I read the book, and I read a bunch of uh, journal articles, and uh, watched TED Talks from professionals about the subject of happiness. And one of the surprising things that I found as a common thread through all of the research was this. Almost everyone agreed that we could be sure of this one thing, that although you cannot acquire or consume or accumulate your way or exercise or even eat your way to happiness, some of you might dispute that last phrase, eat your way to happiness, you think, well... All of the research shows that although you cannot acquire and consume your way to happiness, you can volunteer and serve your way to happiness. And so, for example, there was a study from the University of Chicago that showed that the most fulfilling careers were not the ones that made the most money or offered the most prestige, but they were careers that involved caring for others, protecting others, teaching others. Uh, one article I read uh, referred to what uh, the scholars called the, quote, happiness high. They said that giving to charity actually triggers a portion of your brain that is responsible for good feelings. And so when you give to charity, your brain releases good feel chemicals. And if any of you found that to be the case in your own life, you found that it was actually when you were giving money away and time away, your resources away, you were giving to other people, you were actually feeling more and more happy. Anyone here felt that way? Yes. UC Berkeley's uh, Greater Good Science Center published another article called the, quote, Activism Cure. And in this, ar- and in this, uh, in this uh, article, it argued that one of the best ways of dealing with depression is to give your life away in service to other people. There was another academic paper in the UK based on research from 40 different studies, and it demonstrated the strong connection between volunteerism, serving others, and public health. It went on to say that even when teenagers, the ones they studied, uh, served unwillingly and with a bad attitude, they still had a lower unplanned pregnancies and drug problems. And so even if your teenage sons or daughters or granddaughters don't like it, get them out serving others. They're going to feel better about life and live a better life. Now, of course, what the researchers have found is something that Jesus taught a very long time ago. It was Jesus himself who said, the way you find your life is how? Is you give it away. The way to live, you first must die. Jesus said, it's more blessed to what? Give than to receive. In other words, what Jesus has taught, what the Apostle Paul is teaching in Philippians is that the way into the good life, the happy life, the life marked by joy is through serving and giving your life away for others. Now, I'm probably telling you something that most of you already know in your own experience. I mean, haven't you found, I mean, I see this in my own kids. I'm looking at my kids in front of me. Um, I, I found that when they are being selfish and when they're not wanting to share with others, everyone is unhappy. Nobody is happy. But when they're buying gifts for their siblings, when they're giving gifts to their siblings, when they're sharing and playing together, they're all happy. And of course, this isn't just true for children, is it? This is true for all of us. It is when we are giving life away, we're serving others, we're sharing our money and our time and our resources with people, we're divesting and giving to others. It is in those moments that we find that life is so much more rich and fulfilling. We're actually experiencing the good life. And so have you found that to be the case in your own experience? 
So, so why is it, so why is it that so many of us, this is so hard? If we know that this is where the good life is found, if in our own experience it says that, that this is where we find happiness, why is it that so many of us find it so difficult to look out for the interest of others ahead of ourselves? Why is it that we find it so easy to be self-centered and ambitious for ourselves? Well, perhaps one of the answers is that the main voices in our culture and the main images that are presented to us again and again through the corporate marketers continue to rehearse that line again and again for us that actually life does consist in the abundance of things you possess. And that to be happy, to know the good life, you actually need to accumulate more and more for yourself, that in order to be safe and happy, you need more and more stuff. Well, because that voice and because those images are so strong in our own culture, I want us to spend some time looking together at a different image and hearing a different voice this morning, and it's the image of Jesus in his own glad self-giving and sacrificial love, and it's the voice of God that speaks to us in this example, calling us, inviting us to come and to experience life in this way, just like Jesus. And it picks up in uh, Colossians 2. Again, you heard it. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Now stop there for a second. I, you know, this is a very familiar passage to many of us this morning. But I want you to consider something of the cultural background that stands behind this text. There's an interesting bit of, uh, I think, uh, the, the Greco-Roman world that if you understand, it makes this text really pop and come alive. And so uh, would you be willing to join with me on about seven or eight minutes of uh, uh, cultural historical background in the Roman Empire? Some of you love this stuff, some of you hate this. But uh, let, let, let's go. So um, in the Greco-Roman world, one of the, the, the core, the chief values, the chief thing that you wanted in life was honor. It was an honor-shame culture. And so the thing that you valued, the currency that was more important than anything else in the world was to gain honor and status and rank. But you were chiefly concerned with honor. And there were basically two ways you could have high honor in the culture. One was you could be born with it because of your pedigree, because of the family history, your family was a part of the senatorial class or whatever, and you were born with honor. But the other way is you could acquire it through competing with others in the culture to gain more and more honor for yourself. And this was so prominent, it was so popular that almost all of you, if you were paying attention to Western Civ, you heard about this. And it was called the cursus honorum, uh, the race for honors, the course of honors. It was, uh, it was uh, it, you know, it's kind of like people were fighting to get to the top and to gain more and more honor in the culture and society. And so um, at the very top 
of the social status ladder, the highest honor in all of the Greco-Roman world belonged to who? Caesar. And Caesar amassed all kinds of honorific titles for himself, titles like Lord and Savior and Prince of Peace and Son of God. Those titles sound familiar to you? These were titles that, honorific titles that Caesar amassed for himself. At the very bottom rung of the social status ladder, those who were marked not by honor but by shame were the slave class. They were at the very bottom of the social status ladder. And uh, so, for example, one writer in the first century said that slavery was the most wretched and hated of all states. And Tacitus, that Roman historian, referred to uh, slaves as the drags of society. So they were down very at the very bottom of the social status ladder. And then uh, a little bit higher up were the citizens, and then the upper echelon of society were the elites. And uh, the elites, this was only 2% of the Roman population. But whether you were a citizen or a part of the elite class or even a part of the slave class, your main goal in life was to move up the ladder. It was to improve your status. It was to move up the course of honors. It was a race to the top. Are you following? And so this was kind of shot through Greco-Roman culture. It was super important in Rome. And Philippi, actually, the colony to whom this was written, was a Roman colony. And it was the most Rome-like Roman colony in all of the Roman Empire. And so this was super important to those in Philippi. Now, it wasn't just important to acquire honor. You also wanted to enhance your honor by putting it on public display for other people. And there were different ways in which your honor could be put on public display before other people. And uh, one of them was you could have inscriptions written uh, on public places with all of your titles. And so back in the ancient world, they didn't have billboards. Uh, What they had were much more permanent structures. And so you could have engraved on a stone pillar in the middle of town, something like this. This was actually uh, an inscription from a a Philippian aristocrat. It says this, Publius Marius Valens, son of Publius, from the tribe of Valentia, honored with the decorations of a decurion, which was a high title and status and rank within the culture, a deal, another status marker, also a decurion of Philippi, a priest of the divine Antonio's Pius, Dumver, sponsor of the games. And do you see what he's doing? He is putting on public display all of his credentials, his full resume, everything that made him awesome in order to enhance his honor in the public eyes and therefore move up the course of honors. Another way in which you could display your honor was through the uh, clothing that you wore. And so back in the ancient world, clothing wasn't really about style and fashion. It was really about rank and status. And you could only wear particular articles of clothing if you fit at a certain rank and status within the culture. But by wearing your, your sash and your little thing on your head or whatever, you could display your honor before everyone else and therefore enhance your honor and move up that course of honors, the the social status letter. Another way in which you could display your honor was by the seat that you were able to enjoy in the stadiums at the games. 
and the seat that you could have at the, uh, at the, at the local dinner parties. And if you were of high rank and status, you would have a really important seat, and people would see you, and they would go, man, they're awesome. And, and you would just be on display, just showing forth all of your uh, outward you know, honor to enhance and to uh, gain status. And so do you see what's happening? The name of the game was to move up the social status ladder. At the very top was Caesar, who was the Lord, the Prince of Peace, the Son of God. At the very bottom was slave class. And we should add this. The only place below a slave, at the very, very bottom, I mean, way even off the social status ladder, would have been a crucified slave. Because the whole point of crucifixion in the first century was actually not to inflict maximal pain, though it was a very painful death. The point of crucifixion in the first century in a honor-shame culture was to inflict maximal shame. And so you would strip a prisoner down naked, you would have them hung up there in front of everybody on public streets, and they would be mocked and ridiculed as they hung there to die. And so the very bottom, way below, at the very, even off the social status ladder, a crucified slave at the very top, Caesar, everyone else kind of trying to race to the top. And it's in this context that Paul writes this. Don't be like them. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't try to raise up that ladder, trying to step on other people to get your way. But instead, he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. That phrase, form of God, is a very important little phrase. And uh, it, the word form is the Greek word morphe. And uh, that word morphe is translated in the, in the NIV Bible as uh, having the same nature as God. But the, the word actually doesn't mean an inner nature. It's really talking about an external presence, a display. And what uh, a lot of scholars will say is that what this refers to is Christ's preexistent state as the eternal son when he shared in the outward manifest display of God's glory. In the Old Testament, God would put his inner character on display, and when he would put his inner character on display, the word used in the Old Testament to describe that was glory, or kavod, or weightiness, and it was putting on display God's ultimate sovereignty, his power over everything that is. And when he would exert a great victory over his enemies, his glory, his power, his sovereignty over all things would be put on display. And his sovereign, and his sovereign expression of his power and his glory in the Old Testament is a jaw-dropping, mind-numbing, heart-racing experience for the children of Israel when they see the glory of God fill the temple or fill the tabernacle, they are stopped dead in their tracks and they fall on their face because this is what the display of God's glory does. And do you see what he's saying? He's saying that though Christ existed in the form of God, though Christ was clothed with the display of God's glory, his public display of God's glory, it says instead he set that aside and instead he took the form of a servant. Verse seven, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant. So he exchanges the 
outward clothing of the very glory of God for the shame of a servant that is weak and powerless. In fact, he says that clinging on to that external glory of God that would show everyone just how great and awesome and powerful he was, was not even an interest for Jesus. He didn't count it as something to be held on to tooth and nail. Anybody here seen The Gladiator? Okay, you remember, many of you have, I think. But you might know something about... uh, the hunger and the lust of uh, those Roman emperors for power. And what they would do to all rivals is they would put them to death. Anyone that threatened their power, they would kill them so that they could hold on to their own power. And this is what Commodus, of course, in the story of the gladiator, seeks to do to uh, the Russell Crowe character and his family is to exterminate them so that he can hold on to power. It says that Jesus did not do that. He didn't need to hold on to his outward display of glory. Rather, he set that aside and instead took the form of a servant. And what is said here theologically is depicted metaphorically when Jesus, on that last night before he is crucified, lays aside his garment and takes up the garb of a common slave and gets down on his knees and starts washing the disciples' feet. And so do you see what is happening in this text? Whereas in the first century, everyone was trying to move up. They were trying to, you know, compete for the race of honors. God in Christ goes down. And instead of a cursus honorum, there's a course of indignity where he lowers himself to the point of death, even in the form of a crucified slave. But look what it says after that in verse 8. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. You know, this, uh, this, this phrase about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing is language drawn from Isaiah chapter 45, which Old Testament scholars will tell us is the firmest, strongest affirmation of monotheism in the entire Old Testament, Isaiah 45. And this claim that God alone is the God of all of earth, that his name is the name above every name now in Philippians says is now shared with Jesus who is the eternal son, one with the father, one in character, one in equality, one in power, and they share glory, the one true God existing in three eternally distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is after the humiliation of Christ that God exalts him to the highest seat of cosmic authority. Now, I don't know about you, But I find this text stunning, and I find that it creates in me a sense of wonder and worship, doesn't it? When you think about God humiliating himself like this and entering into our humanity so that he could suffer what we deserve so that we can share in only what he deserves. 
But what's fascinating in this text is he doesn't just write this to stimulate our wonder and our worship. He actually writes this in order to encourage our example or to encourage us to follow in this example, to follow in the pattern. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, go out and do the very things that Jesus did. Divest yourself and serve others. Don't vie and hold on to power and name and present yourself to other people. He says, instead, give yourself away. Now, of course, in the first century, this would have been radically revolutionary because it was calling them to do something that nobody else was doing in the Roman culture. But aren't you glad that we've got it so much better now? No, we're not just talking about ancient Rome, are we? I mean, we play the same game. We have our own cursus norm, don't we? In our jobs, in our fields of employment, in, our, in academia, in the home, even in church life, we oftentimes try to present our resume to other people. We tell everyone our positions we've hold and what we've done and what we've been to this church, what we've meant to this church, just so you know, we keep displaying our honor and glory. And of course, it's never been easier to put our honor on display. Thank you, social media. Thank you, Instagram. Thank you, Facebook and Pinterest. Thank you, followers. Thank you, shares. Thank you, likes. We all play the same game. Now, fortunately, in pastoral ministry, as you would expect, we managed to avoid this altogether. Now, of course, status isn't bad, honor isn't bad, money isn't bad, but here's the question. Are we spending our lives acquiring and possessing and holding on to and then mourning over because we don't have what we used to have and and then presenting to others again and again so that they notice us, they see us, they acknowledge us, they know what we've done and who we are and all of our accomplishments? Are we seeking tooth and nail to hold on to that and to present that and we grieve over it when we lose it? Are we following in the path of Jesus, who used their honor and their status and their privilege for the sake of others? Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Now, there's so many applications of this in our lives, isn't there? There are so many ways in which you could take Anything that you might be able to boast in, you know, whether it be your home or your bank account or your career or your skills, you can take just about anything that you would have a tendency to use to display to others, and you can actually set aside that whole game, and you can use all that you have, your gifts, your talents, your home, your car, your vacation home, or whatever you got, and you can actually use that in order to serve others. There are so many ways. But I just want to mention one before we close. And it is simply having good manners. You know, we had a uh, a, a pretty sharp academic guy who came and spoke at my church in uh, Albuquerque and we had, we had him come out because he had written this book called The Practices of Love. And he had done his academic research on disciplines that cultivate a way of love in, in our lives. And I remember at one point he said, you know, 
He said, what it boils down to in many ways is something that is forgotten in our culture, and it's the basic virtue of having good manners. And so let me show you the opposite of that. You're in a conversation, and somebody's talking, and rather than listening, you're thinking of what you're going to say in response. Anybody ever do that? Or somebody's telling a story, and while you're listening, you're thinking, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, wait, I got a better one, I got a better one. And then you jump out with your story, and you try to, you know, one-upmanship someone else. Or we walk into a place like this, and we're thinking about all of the ways in which somebody isn't doing to me what they ought to be doing. They haven't acknowledged my uh, title or my position or, or, or me or my presence here. But actually, active love is to set all that stuff aside and actually look out to the interests of others who are looking for a friend, who are looking for somebody to greet them and invite them out to lunch or to their home or whatever. But there are so many ways and shapes and forms that God has called us into this life. Now, we've got to end and uh, you'll notice in your bulletin that um, it says on your bulletin a new name, and it says Christ our Redeemer. Do you see that? They got the title wrong. This was Christ our example this week, but then as I was thinking about how much I fall short of this whole thing of example, I thought, no, we need to get to Christ our Redeemer today. And of course, Christ did come to us who are seeking our own. He has lowered himself, he's divested himself so that we might be rescued and made new and made his own and then shaped and formed into a people that goes out into the world and that reenacts his love in our relationships, in our manners, and all that we are and say and do in this world.